this is Rachel Fields and Nick Dodge with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Vice President Kamala Harris made a visit to Milwaukee today to showcase her plan to replace lead pipes across the nation. WPR reports that there are around 70,000 lead pipes in Milwaukee, more than any other city in the state. The Biden-Harris Lead Pipe and Paint Action Plan is a part of the administration's bipartisan infrastructure bill and aims to replace all lead pipes across the country within the next 10 years. As part of the plan, Wisconsin will be given $48 million as part of the project, though the Associated Press reports that the cost of replacing all lead pipes in Milwaukee alone would cost around $800 million. The UW system has a new president today, reports the Capital Times. The UW Board of Regents voted unanimously on Friday to offer the position to Jay Rothman, the CEO of a law firm in Milwaukee. Notably, Rothman has no prior experience in higher education administration, a departure from most previous presidents. Some UW organizations have criticized the Board of Regents for failing to hold public hearing sessions with all the candidates before making the offer, which multiple groups called for last week. This brings to an end the two-year search for a new UW president, which first began with the departure of former President Ray Cross in 2020. Since then, a series of interim presidents have led the university system. Rothman will officially begin his new position on June 1st. A vigil was held over the weekend to honor the life of Ishmael James, a MMSD staff member who lost his life in a car accident Friday morning. Channel 3000 reports that James was a special education assistant at Orchard Ridge Elementary and was known around the school as a gentle giant. The vigil held at Warner Park saw dozens of people honoring the life of Ishmael James. A GoFundMe has been set up for the family and has raised close to $40,000. Last night's snowfall continues to affect Madison, as a snow emergency continues to be in effect tonight. This means that alternate side parking is in effect for the entire city, and the city is asking anybody with the option to park off the street to do so. Parking is available in city-owned parking ramps for free between the hours of 9 p.m. and 7 a.m., but be sure to move your car before then, as you will be liable for costs after 7 a.m. Failure to follow snow emergency rules may result in a parking ticket or having your vehicle towed. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 5,042 confirmed COVID cases yesterday, a sign that the Omicron surge may be on the decline across the state. Over the last week, 25.1% of tests have come back positive. It is unconfirmed how many people have died from the virus over the weekend. Across the state, 63.1%. 63.1% of people have received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine. Here in Dane County, there were 687 confirmed cases of the virus yesterday. Public Health Madison in Dane County is reminding people that while PCR tests are automatically reported to the county, you are also able to report your test results of an at-home rapid test. This helps the state to get a better understanding of the current state of the virus across the state. You can report your at-home test on the Public Health Madison and Dane County website. And now, on to today's top stories. 
In a piece of breaking news, absentee ballot boxes can be used for the upcoming spring primary. That's according to a new ruling from the Wisconsin Court of Appeals today, as the matter winds its way through the courts. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has the story. Earlier today, the Wisconsin Court of Appeals agreed to let absentee ballot drop boxes be used for the upcoming primary election. But the decision is not permanent. It's a temporary allowance made by the courts to accommodate the rapidly approaching primary in just over three weeks. And it's a reversal from the ruling last week when a Waukesha County judge declined to issue the same type of decision, a stay on a recent ruling that would bar the use of absentee drop boxes. The legal back and forth is all part of an ongoing case brought forward by the conservative law firm Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Today's ruling from the Wisconsin Court of Appeals does not throw out the case entirely, but allows the use of absentee drop boxes until February 15th, the date of the spring primary. The appeal to temporarily keep the drop boxes was filed last Friday by nonprofit law firm Law Forward and Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call on behalf of the state's election agency. They appealed the entire ruling, including the block, on all future use of absentee drop boxes. Disability Rights Wisconsin is a nonprofit group that advocates for the rights of people with disabilities in Wisconsin that is currently being represented by Law Forward. Barbara Beckett is the director of the Disabilities Rights Wisconsin Milwaukee office and says that the last minute change to the election laws would only have caused confusion. We're extremely concerned about the timing. The election, a very important election that affects local offices across our state, is less than a month away. And yet again, we see because of challenges to voting rights that there is confusion and potentially chaos. People are unsure about what kind of guidance to give to others, and that includes the 1,800 municipal clerks in Wisconsin who work so hard what are they supposed to put in the guidance that they are providing to voters and absentee ballots that they are mailing right now? In fact, that may already be in the mail when there are these continuing challenges. Law Forward is also representing the League of Women's Voters of Wisconsin, a nonpartisan political advocacy group, and Wisconsin Faith Voices for Justice, a religious-based advocacy group. Scott Thompson is part of the staff council at Law Forward, he says that letting the original ruling stand would also disenfranchise people who are disabled. Since at least the mid-50s, Wisconsin has acknowledged that people on occasion help each other return their absentee ballots. We call this ballot assistance. It occurs, for example, if I were to place my friend's absentee ballot into a mailbox, and it would occur if someone would you know, bring someone else's absentee ballot back to the municipal clerk. Now, the ruling from the circuit court prohibits this conduct altogether, essentially forbidding anyone from returning someone else's ballot on their behalf. According to Thompson, there are around 80,000 people in Wisconsin who require nursing home level care within their home. Thompson says that one of the reasons for the appeal of Friday's ruling was a last minute change to the conditions of the circuit judge's ruling. On Friday, there was a hearing in the circuit court concerning a motion for a stay that we filed there, essentially asking the circuit court in Waukesha County to put a stay on its own ruling through the spring elections. 
during that hearing, the court denied our motion and then in something of a surprise on its own, moved up the deadline for compliance with its order from what was originally January 27th to January 24th today. Thompson says the reasoning behind the court's decision to move up the compliance date was to make the Wisconsin Elections Commission move as quickly as possible so that people would not cast their ballot in a way that the court deemed illegal. But the Court of Appeals says that not enough time was given in order to comply with the demands placed on the Elections Commission. According to the order, 8,398 ballots have already been sent out by municipal clerks across the state. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty told WORT in an email that, quote, we are confident that the circuit court's ruling will ultimately be upheld and will evaluate our options, end quote. Today's decision was a temporary one. The case is still before the Court of Appeals, which has not indicated whether or not they will hear the entire case. There are 15 drop boxes across Madison, most of which are housed at fire stations across the city. But that's a moot point since there's no spring primaries in the city of Madison. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Hout. The United States Senate failed to pass comprehensive voting rights legislation this week, but one Wisconsin advocacy group says the defeat offers an opportunity to pass voting rights that weren't included in the version considered by the Senate. Jonah Chester at the Wisconsin News Connection has more. After a defeat on Wednesday, Democrats in the U.S. Senate say they'll keep trying to pass voting rights legislation, and one Wisconsin group wants any new proposals to exclude a provision in the bill that didn't pass. Barbara Beckert with Disability Rights Wisconsin says the package considered by the Senate this week included a paper ballot mandate. She says this concerns many voters with disabilities as the ability to cast a paper ballot privately and independently isn't an option for some. We think it's important to have a carve out for voters covered by the Americans with Disabilities Act so they would not be required to vote by paper ballot. Becker says current law doesn't include such a mandate and some folks with disabilities already use accessible voting machines or vote absentee without generating a paper ballot. Last year, a coalition of 20 disability rights groups voiced their opposition to the mandate, arguing it would disenfranchise voters with disabilities and stifle innovation to develop voting systems that work better for this group of voters. Becker says voting rights legislation is important to ensure fair access for Wisconsinites, her group thinks future efforts should include provisions for screen reader accessible and ADA compliant absentee ballots. And uh, that would allow equitable access to absentee voting for voters who are blind or have other disabilities where they do not have the ability to physically mark the ballot and need assistive technology. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, at least 19 states passed laws restricting voting access in 2021. Some similar bills in Wisconsin were vetoed by Democratic Governor Tony Evers. During this week's Senate debate, Wisconsin's Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin criticized her Republican counterpart, Senator Ron Johnson, for encouraging Wisconsin's legislature to take control of the state's elections. Baldwin, quoting reporting from the New York Times, alleged that Johnson had said the process was legally permissible. An extraordinary legal argument debunked by a 1932 Supreme Court decision and a 1964 ruling from the Wisconsin Supreme Court, end quote, from the New York Times. In a statement, Johnson argued that Democrats, in attempting to bypass the filibuster to get the voting rights legislation passed, were mounting a federal takeover of elections, calling the move a, quote, naked power grab, unquote. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester.
Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Last week, the Wisconsin Policy Forum released a new report that showed a sizable gender gap in elected positions across Wisconsin. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Ashley Fisher, the lead researcher on the report, to learn more. Last week, the Wisconsin Policy Forum released their newest report titled More Women Elected But Gender Gap Persists. The report outlines the where and how many women hold elected office across the state. And although Wisconsin continues to see growth, a significant gap still exists for women elected to public office. To learn more about this report, I'm talking with Ashley Fisher, the lead researcher on the report. Ashley, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just starting things off broadly, can you tell us what you found with this report? Sure. So we took a look at the status of women in elected offices in Wisconsin across the state. And in most cases, we found that women hold more of these positions than at any time in history. For example, in the state legislature, women hold 31% of all seats. But we also found that in most instances, the number of women in public office do not reflect the percentage of women in the general population and also that men continue to fill a majority of elected positions. One thing that really sort of stuck out to me with this report was the lack of women in municipal and county office seats. Can you just tell me a little bit more about that and maybe what that means? Certainly. So in many municipal and county seats, women hold less than one-third of available positions. So this includes places like your city councils, village boards of trustees, and county boards of supervisors. There are some exceptions, such as clerks of courts, county treasurers, registrars of deeds, and county clerks where women hold the majority of those positions. And if you look at the judiciary, women hold 86%, which is six of seven seats on the state Supreme Court. But for the local government, less than one-third of most positions. That has a couple of factors that it impacts. One would be that these seats are important in their own right. Local governments provide critical services. And if one wants to have um, representatives and elected officials that represent the full population, there is a disparity there. But also that these positions are also springboards to higher levels of office. So if you have more women coming in to positions at the local level, they're more likely to run for state office or federal office down the road. 
So you sort of briefly mentioned something of another thing that stuck out to me was the large number of women serving in certain positions, but not others. For instance, 93% of Wisconsin's clerk of courts are women and 82% of county clerks are women. Do you know why that is and just sort of broadly what that means? I don't actually know why that is. We didn't have capacity to go and, and do interviews or to really dig into this. I can say that... Women, we found, especially looking at um, a Wisconsin Blue Book feature on women in the state legislature, we found that women tend to run for office if somebody asks them. And part of that could just be feeling like they're qualified or not. Whether or not they are, the feeling of being qualified can impact that. And people asking them to run can make a difference. And so I don't know why women are in these positions more so than others, but that could be a factor. So one thing that was sort of mentioned in the report was the lack of competition within municipal and county seats. Could you sort of expand on that a little bit? So in March of 2020, we issued a brief report called No Contest, and it found that races for local offices, such as city councils and city county boards, often lack competition. So in many cases, voters have only one candidate on their ballot. And so we suggested in our piece that because of this, looking towards women as a place to generate interest that would get more candidates on the ballot and more competition and more people to choose between could be a great option. Taking a bit of a step back nationwide, how does Wisconsin hold up against the rest of the country? At the state legislative level, Wisconsin is exactly on track with the rest of the country with 31% of our state legislators being women. And that's the number mirrored at the national level or in state legislatures across the country. Now, this has not always been the case in the, in many decades, in the 90s, in the 80s, and even in the 2000s, Wisconsin often beat the national average. So this is the really the first time in recent years where we are meeting the national average instead of beating it. Was there anything that you found in your research that really sort of surprised you or stuck out to you? That's a good question. I think the fact that there are so few women at the local level did surprise me somewhat, but what did stick out is that that is changing. So we compared the current numbers to what was happening in 2015 using data from the Wisconsin Women's Council. And in many instances, the number of women has grown since that time. So that that gave some room for hope that that might be a trend that we see continue. Can't say for sure, but that was also a pleasant surprise that it, the numbers aren't stagnant. So you talked about sort of looking forward there. Using this data, are you able to make sort of any predictions about the future of women in elected positions in Wisconsin? Do you see these numbers continuing to rise? So I can't give you a prediction, but I can say that based on research published by the University of Wisconsin Extension Division, Office of Local Government Education, efforts to recruit women to local office in Wisconsin that specifically address misconceptions about running for office might be helpful, including misconceptions like surrounding campaign costs and what it takes to be qualified. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What sort of things are being done to encourage women to run for office across the state? Wisconsin Blue Book feature that talked with the women state legislators found that because most of them had to be asked to run for office and because many of them had to be asked multiple times, that that can make a big difference. But there are so many different kinds of parties that can be 
or consider themselves responsible for asking those. That could be your neighbor. That could be a colleague at work. That could be a political party reaching out specifically to recruit women from diverse backgrounds. There's no one particular group that is fully responsible. Do you have any just final thoughts on this report that you'd like to share? I think we've covered the majority of our findings from this report. It's always a space where there's grief. There aren't a lot of women that have covered statewide offices. For instance, Wisconsin has never had a woman as a governor. There have been only three lieutenant governors, five state treasurers, one attorney general. We've had one U.S. senator and two U.S. representatives and only two secretaries of state. So, you know, if you think think how long the history of this has very few women in those statewide offices. So while, while there is change happening, there's no guarantee that it will um, keep moving forward. I can't make that prediction for you. And there's no guarantee that it will slide backward either. So I think we're in a good space. I think women are, are starting to run for office at higher numbers as shown in the 2021 data versus 2015. And, and there is a growing body of research available to help people um, seek out information as to why the numbers are as they are and to figure out how they can plug in. So I just have one last question for you. Can you sort of walk through uh, the process that you went through to gather this information? Certainly. So I lean heavily on data provided by the Wisconsin Women's Council. They, every so often, uh, periodically, they look at and count government by government in the state the number of women holding these various positions, and that's thousands of positions. Um, so I was able to pull their data that was updated in 2021. And I also looked to the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University, and I also drew upon the Wisconsin I've been speaking with Ashley Fisher, the lead researcher on the Wisconsin Policy Forum's newest report, More Women Elected But Gender Gap Persists. You can read the full report on the Wisconsin Policy Forum website. Ashley, thank you once again so much for taking the time to talk with me. You're very welcome. Thank you. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. A zoo update and legal action against PFAS manufacturers with Forward Lookout. A short history of reboots with Bridging the Gap. And two new movie reviews. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining us. Every Monday, contributor Brenda Conkle looks ahead to city, county, and school agendas to find out what's coming up in local government. On this week's Forward Lookout, Brenda sat down with Dylan Brogan to talk about a zoo update and where the city will be discussing legal action against PFAS contributors.
That's right, it's Monday, and we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com to find out what is happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County. All these uh, meetings are usual or virtual, unless we say otherwise, so just keep that in mind. Today, uh, already in progress, is the Personnel and Finance Committee. What are they talking about, Brenda? They have a whole lot of routine items, but there's a few interesting items. They're um, contracting with UW-River Falls to conduct a survey on broadband access in Dane County, see once what the needs are. They're also going to be looking at an assessment of food security gaps. Um, there's a few items where the cops are getting more money, uh, one for breaching tools for the Sheriff's Office tactical response team, and the other is another grant that they get with the Dane County Narcotics Task Force. Um, and then they'll be talking about carry forwards money that wasn't spent in 2021 that can be spent in 2022. And Tuesday, similar topic. It's the Criminal Justice Council's Racial Disparity Subcommittee that meets at 12:15, and you can watch that. That's probably in person, but are, are, are people allowed to watch that virtually, or what's the deal with that one? Um, that one, you can join the meeting. Uh, usually, you can listen in either by calling in or by doing it on Zoom. Okay, and what are they talking about? They'll be talking about the Community Justice Center initiative, what are their next steps in the planning process there. They're also going to be talking about goal setting for a reduction of racial and ethnic disparities, as well as getting a community restorative court update and then an update on um, outreach to the public about knowing your rights, about when to call law enforcement and how to respond. 515, the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee, they're meeting virtually. And what are they talking about? Uh, they're going to be talking about hiring outside counsel to sue the companies that have led to all the PFAS that's contaminating our, our lands and our waters. Um, and then they'll be getting a jail consolidation project update from the Dane County Sheriff's Office. Something tells me DuPont is involved. <laughs> that and a couple other companies. Yes, yes. <laughs> 5.30, the Public Works and Transportation Committee. They'll be uh, they're getting an update on the zoo. That's nice. Yep, that's our annual zoo update. Mm. So then they come in once a year and give them an update. And then they'll also be hearing about the jail consolidation project and authorizing another change order to pay more money to meet and hunt for the project. That meet and hunt, man. It's quite a racket they got going with this jail project. Just keep revising <laughs> plans for 20 years done. and it's a full-time job, I'm sure. And but they do fine work, I hear. All right, Wednesday, 5.30, it's the Parks Commission, or just Park Commission. I'm not sure what it is, but I like parks. There's more than one. So what are they talking about? Um, they have several grant awards that they are getting and money that's coming in for the foundation for Dane County Parks. So they've got four or five items on that. They're also getting a Fish Lake trailer demo update. Ooh, fun. As well as they've got a new volunteer coordinator and a few other planning updates for various parks. Okay, if you want to know about parks, you got to check out the Park Committee. Moving on to the City of Madison, uh, already in progress, it's the Finance Committee that happened or got going at about 4.30. We're getting some BRT, Bus Rapid Transit updates. Um, anything else of note? Um, no, they're, they're actually entering into some agreements with uh, third parties that will help outside of Madison who will help with oh, some yeah. of the funding for it as well as you know some of the folks that are going to be doing the actual work so it's it's moving along and we're actually making agreements to make it happen um the other things that are on the agenda that might be of interest is the lake monona waterfront design challenge process as well as um the imagination center at rindall park the operating plan for how that's going to happen all right very cool 5 p.m water quality technical advisory committee 
This better be important, Brenda. That started <laughs> PFAS, at five o'clock. Yeah, if you care PFAS. about PFAS, you or maybe yes. a little late, but that's a good place to get information. Yeah, they'll be doing monitoring and results update and also looking at some other data that they usually check. So if you're interested in water quality, it's a good community to go to. And speaking of water quality, 4.30 uh, Tuesday, the Water Utility Board is also getting an update or they're talking about standards for PFOFs. Um, tell us more about that. Yeah, so they'll be getting, um, there's, um, they're setting standards for PFOS, and so they'll be getting a status update on how those standards are going. Um, and then they have quite a few reports that they get every month, but it's about sustainability, water production, financial conditions of the water utility, as well as capital projects. And heading down to Thursday, 4 p.m., it's the Gulf Subcommittee. Have they sold all those things off yet, Brenda? Apparently not. They're still meeting. I heard um, one of them is going to be a dump. That makes sense. Yeah. They are getting the year-end financials update, probably to decide if they should sell more. <laughs> yeah, I, we um, need to be more against golf, and I and I I know like the city golf courses are way more accessible, but it, we're still talking about golf, and I don't think we should give up city assets. But boy, we need some uh, affordable land for housing. I can think of a couple places that have uh, beautifully landscaped places we could do it. Yep. You're not taking so, it. Okay. All right. I won't drag into this. Go ahead, Brenda. No, I mean, there is, there is, there's obviously, I think we could have golf and housing in many of those places. That's the issue. It's such an inefficient use of land space that they could probably still have a part of a golf course and a whole bunch of affordable housing. Um, but they will, they will not be talking about that. They will be talking about golf park programming plan, the golf fees for 2022, and then um, proposed changes to league requirements. And uh, at five o'clock, the Housing Strategy Committee, hmm, maybe they would be at the golf meeting earlier. They're, they're reviewing their 2022 agendas. So we'll, just so you know about that. Brenda, tell us about what's happening at 530 Thursday. It's the Madison Arts Commission. Yep, they're gonna be talking about the Madison Metro percent for art project. Each project has to have a certain percentage of money that they put into art. So we'll be talking about what Madison Metro is doing. They'll also be reviewing some of their annual grants and um, talking about public art conservation um, and some of the places that they were talking about decommissioning and how they're going to be doing that. And then there's a bunch of other reports. And if you want to hear about what else is happening in the city of Madison or Dane County, make sure to check out forwardlookout.com. And from there, you got some convenient links to uh, the meetings and agenda links. So thank you, Brenda, for helping us uh, figure out what's going on this week. Welcome. On today's The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson looks back at the infamous bath riots in El Paso, Texas. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Friday, January 28th, marks the day in 1917 when Carmelita Torres led the bath riots at the El Paso Juarez border. Torres was a 17-year-old Mexican maid who crossed daily into the U.S. to work. To enter each day, thousands of Mexican laborers were required to strip naked and sprayed in a toxic gasoline mixture. The so-called delousing was a daily humiliation required by the U.S. government, supposedly to keep flea-borne 
typhus from coming into the U.S. An even more extreme approach was brought up in 1916 by the newly elected mayor of El Paso, Texas, Thomas Calloway Lee, who sent telegrams to U.S. senators demanding a quarantine camp to stem the tide of, quote, dirty, lousy, destitute Mexicans, end quote. The public health service operator for the city, Dr. B.J. Lloyd, admitted there was little danger and opposed a quarantine, but suggested opening de-lousing plants. U.S. officials quickly adopted a policy of sanitizing Mexican immigrants and a disinfecting station in El Paso. The policy initially applied to all Mexicans entering the U.S. at El Paso, but soon spread to Laredo, Nuevo Laredo crossing, and eventually along the entire U.S.-Mexico border. Delousing could be dangerous. A year earlier, 28 Mexican prisoners in the El Paso jail had died in a fire while being deloused with gasoline. The process was also humiliating. There were rumors that health workers secretly photographed and then distributed photos of naked women as they were being sprayed. A trolley carried border crossers directly from Mexico into El Paso. But on that Saturday, Carmelita Torres refused to disrobe, refused fumigation, and convinced the other women to protest with her. First, the 30 women on her trolley car joined in, then 200. Eventually, 2,000 protested. Women marched to the disinfection camp, hoping to convince those undergoing disinfection to join them. When the health officials tried to disperse the crowd, they were met with rocks and bottles. The women then laid down on the trolley car tracks to stop the arrival of more Mexican workers and wrestled with motormen for control of the cars. The Mexican men generally stood on the sidelines and cheered the women on. The next day, protests were mostly led by men against the current government, supporting the rebellion led by Pancho Villa. On the Mexican side, the local troops were called into the scene, but the commanding officer chose to stand by and watch the situation. The El Paso Herald reported that one of the Mexican soldiers in the crowd shouted, Viva Villa, and was quickly apprehended by the soldiers, court-martialed, sentenced, and reportedly executed during the afternoon for his nod to revolutionary leader Pancho Villa. The standoff with the protesters continued for most of the morning. The International Bridge was closed. The riot shut down the border on Sunday and Monday. Military and police on both sides of the border restored order. By Tuesday morning, the bridge and border were reopened. The ringleaders were arrested, and a few of the men were publicly executed. Carmelita Torres was imprisoned, but there are no records of what happened to her after that. The Mexican authorities set up a fumigation center and issued certificates to border crossers. El Paso officials accepted them on a limited basis. Ironically, the Spanish flu pandemic that entered the nation in 1918 infecting soldiers at nearby Fort Bliss proved far more deadly to border residents than the perceived fear of typhus. In the 20s, authorities at the Santa Fe Bridge fumigated clothing of Mexicans coming into the U.S. with Zyklon B, originally developed as a pesticide. The Nazis later used the chemical on Jewish prisoners praising the U.S. system of delousing. Later, the dosage was increased and used to exterminate prisoners in the concentration camps. In the 40s, the Bracero program used DDT on Mexican workers coming to the U.S. Tragically, the fumigation programs continued into the late 50s. Unbelievable conditions continue at the border, but there are grassroots groups fighting for fair treatment, like No More Deaths, which seeks to help people entering the U.S. from Mexico.
And that is our story for today. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In this week's edition of Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen takes a look at TV show spin-offs and reboots. And just like that, the millennial hit series Sex and the City released its rebooted version in December 2021. The reboot features the original characters returning to the show to continue their adventures in New York City. Sex and the City was one of the most iconic shows to run in the early 2000s and was one of the most influential shows during its time. TV show and film reboots or spin-offs can not only instill nostalgia for its original audience, but also attract new viewers with its more modern take. In this week's edition, we'll take a look at some of the TV show reboots that span across generations. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. Boy Meets World aired on ABC Network and ran from 1993 to 2000. The show features Corey Matthews as he navigates life from 6th grade through college. He learns a series of life lessons through his teacher, Mr. Feeney, and explores his teenage years with his friends and love interest, Topanga. In 2014, Disney Channel released Girl Meets World, a spinoff of Boy Meets World. In this spinoff, Corey and Topanga have gotten married and have two children, Riley and Augie. Riley becomes the protagonist of the show with Corey being her teacher. Corey, who is learning to navigate life during his teenage years in Boy Meets World, now mentors Riley and her friends as they learn different life lessons in the show. Dad? Yeah? Thank you for being a good teacher. Yeah, thanks. Boy, there's nothing better than hearing that from your students. This spinoff is an example of a show that continued the storyline of the original series. Girl Meets World featured a different set of characters with more modern issues while also interacting with the original characters from Boy Meets World. The targeted audience for Boy Meets World has grown up with Corey and perhaps have children of their own. With their children being the target audience for Girl Meets World, the show could also attract the original viewers of Boy Meets World to see their favorite characters reappear on the screen. Spinoffs like this can attract viewers across generations. Another show that was remade after many years is Battlestar Galactica. This series was originally aired in 1978, only running for one season before it got taken off the air. There are those who believe that life here began out there, far across the universe, with tribes of humans who may have been the forefathers of the Egyptians 
The premise of the story was about 12 different colonies of human civilization living in outer space and being attacked by Cylons, which were warrior robots. The colonies in space heard about planet Earth being a safe place for humans to reside and went on a quest to find Earth while avoiding attacks from Cylons. The timeline initially took place after the 1969 moon landing. The series was revived in 2004, moving the timeline forward 40 years after. However, it is said that the series was changed to indicate that these events happened in a prehistoric time period. With improved filming and editing technology, the series made huge improvements on its sci-fi elements. The show also moved away from its quest missions into questions about morals and the meaning of humanities as it faces extinction. The show poses the larger question of whether technological advancement actually benefits humanity. The spin-off was thought to be one of the best TV show remakes of all time, taking an idea from a previous generation and adapting it with a modern take. Lately, many show revivals, spin-offs, and reboots are in the works. Daniel Herbert, Associate Professor of Film, Television, and Media at the University of Michigan, talked in a faculty interview about this phenomenon. Herbert says, quote, There is obviously the nostalgia of the experience of watching a character you know or seeing what has happened to them since you last left them. We've also undergone tremendous and rapid changes around the issues of identity and representation that is sparking a lot of reboots, end quote. Herbert says that rebooting an old show is a creatively conservative way used by networks to ensure itself knowing the idea has already worked in the past. And as audiences, we tend to like familiarity more than we think. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. On today's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson takes a look at two new movies, two documentaries on a landmark black playwright and on black novelist James Baldwin. Lorraine Hansberry is hugely important for having written A Raisin in the Sun, the most celebrated play by an African-American author, considered one of the great plays of the 20th century. That was from the trailer for Lorraine Hansberry, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart, the 2017 documentary directed by Tracy Heather Strain. It first appeared on PBS but was streamed last weekend along with 39 other films as part of the 2022 MLK Day, the World House Documentary Film Festival, sponsored by Stanford University. The documentary gives us a broad overview of the famous author, playwright of Raisin in the Sun. Hansberry used her personal story of growing up in the south side of Chicago to write the play. Her father was a wealthy slumlord who provided housing for the growing southern migration. Their family lived in one of those units, so she knew the desperate situation of many people living there. He also strongly opposed segregated housing, and in 1937 bought a home in a white neighborhood. They soon faced eviction by the local property owners association. He challenged the restrictive residence laws in court. Tensions were high. At one point, a crowd gathered outside their home, and Hansberry's mom guarded her children with a gun. A rock was thrown through the window, barely missing the seven-year-old Lorraine's head. The case ended up in the Supreme Court, where Hansberry won a partial victory, which allowed more blacks to move into the neighborhood without overturning the existing restrictive rules. But her parents were also lifelong Republicans, something not mentioned in the doc, but brought up in a recent New Yorker piece on Hansberry. Lorraine attended the UW-Madison for two years, 
where she campaigned for Henry Wallace's Progressive Party, despite her parents' wishes, another point left out of the dock. She also became involved in a student theater group. Then she moved to New York and became a writer for the Radical Freedom, the Harlem-based paper run by Paul Robeson. She also came in contact and was influenced by Julian Mayfield, W.B. Du Bois, Alice Childress, Ruby Dee, Ozzie Davis, Claudia Jones, and James Baldwin. The experience further radicalized her and increased her commitment to become a writer. She became a dedicated member of the Communist Party, eventually falling in love and marrying Robert Nemiroff, a fellow party activist. Nemiroff was the son of Russian Jewish immigrants. She was greatly influenced by Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Nemiroff supported her financially, which allowed her to work on Raisin full-time and introduced her to the person who got it on stage. She became the first African-American woman to have her play performed on Broadway in 1959. Hainsbury came out as a lesbian and moved out of the city to dedicate her time to writing. Tragically, she died a few years later after the great success of Raisin and the Sun. She was 35. She died of cancer. Her doctor and spouse had kept the diagnosis from her, sadly a common practice at that time. Now for a story about another African-American author from the festival. I was born in Harlem in 1924, when it was a very different place than it is now. That was a clip from the trailer for James Baldwin, The Price of a Ticket, directed by Karen Thorson. It originally aired on PBS in 1989, but Baldwin's words sound as though they were written yesterday. The best parts of the film are excerpts of interviews with Baldwin over the years. There is also some informal footage of Baldwin at different points of his life, including his time in a small Swiss village when he wrote his most famous novel, 1953's Go Tell It on the Mountain, Thorson explained. We found hundreds of archival film clips, so he stitched them together so that he would tell his own story. One particularly timely statement from Baldwin came at an appearance on the Dick Cavett talk show. We can only hear Baldwin's response to what seems to have been gaslighting by a fellow guest. I don't know if the real estate lobby has anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobby is keeping me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools they have to go to. Now, this is the evidence, and you want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my life, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. The film also includes some heartfelt commentary by family and friends of Baldwin, like his brother Richard, William Cole, his editor at Knopf, biographer David Leeming, and poet Maya Angelou. Two fine documentaries well worth going out of your way to find. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Thanks to feature editor Nicholas Leet. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Nick Dodge. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.